Hello and welcome to this event, Does the UK's Human Rights Regime Need Reform? I'm Jess Sargent, Senior Researcher at the Institute for Government and also leading the review of the Constitution, um, a project that the IFG is working on in collaboration with the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge and part of the series um, that this event forms part of. We're also very grateful to Cornerstone Barristers for their support for this event. So, the Human Rights Act came into force over 20 years ago and was a major constitutional innovation. This, along with other new labour reforms, prompted some constitutional scholars to argue that the UK had an entirely new constitution. Since then, it's become an integral part of the UK's political system, changing the behaviour of government, public bodies, the courts and citizens themselves. Its proponents have um, pointed to the success um, allowing ordinary citizens to challenge the power of the state and also leading to advancement in rights in some areas. But others argue that the Human Rights Act undermines parliamentary sovereignty and executive autonomy, and some in politics, including our current Justice Secretary, reform has been a long-term goal. After being dropped by the Liz Truss government, Dominic Raab's Bill of Rights bill is back in Parliament, but will it make it into law? Joining me now to discuss all of this and more, I have an excellent panel. Uh, firstly, Baroness Shami Chakrabarti, who's a Labour peer and campaigner. She was Shadow Attorney General from September 2016 to April 2020 and Director of Liberty uh, between 2003 and 2016. Uh, next, Estelle Dehan Casey is a leading public law practitioner at Cornerstone Barristers. She's advised a range of clients, including the Human Rights Commission, the Citizens, and has worked on high-profile cases, including on personal protection um, equipment for medical professionals during the pandemic and algorithmic decision-making for A-level results. Next, we have Lord Edward Foulkes Casey, um, who's a non-affiliated peer and barrister. Lord Foulkes was Minister of State for Justice between 2014 and 2016, and he's also currently the chair of the Independent Press Standards Organisation. And finally, we have Professor Colm Okaneda, Professor of Constitutional and Human Rights Law at University College London. He's advised the Joint Committee on Human Rights, the House of Commons Women and Equalities Committee, and also served on expert bodies across Europe. So during this event, we'll be taking questions from the audience, both online and in person. So please do send in your questions via Slido. If you are online, that should be on the side of your screen. If you're joining us in person, you can use the hashtag IFG Human Rights, or there'll also be a microphone coming around later. Um, we'll be tweeting along at IFG events. Please do also use the hashtag IFG Human Rights. So let's get started. Um, first, I wanted to come to you, Com. Let's get back to basics, and um, for people that might not be kind of expert in this area, can you explain to us in basic terms what the Human Rights Act does? Okay. Um, hello, everyone, including everyone online. Um, what the Human Rights Act does. Um, apologies to the lawyers in the room. You're going to know all of this. Um, but for, it might help, I think, everyone if we sort of go back, as just said, to, to certain first principles. Um, the UK has historically had no... Um, homegrown concept of constitutional rights, unlike, say, the United States. Um, it's, 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 it has, of course, a, a particular tradition of sort of how the common law should be developed and interpreted, codes of practices, assumptions, um, an ethos, if you want, whereby certain values and principles like freedom of speech, liberty of the person, and so on, should be valued and respected. 
um, in theory, if not always in practice, of course. Um, and that value, and, and those values used to influence debates in Parliament, uh, the lawmaking process, how the executive went about its business, and also the courts from time to time in interpreting law. So if you look at sort of how the courts have interpreted defamation over the years, and again, in theory, there was, um, you know, freedom of speech would be a, a, a value that would enter the common law calculus in developing the tort of defamation. Um, but at the same time, you had this developing concept of human rights, um, which very much um, acquired huge momentum after 1945, Universal Declaration of Human Rights in particular. And you had this developing concept of international human rights law. Um, the UK became a, a ratified the European Convention on Human Rights in 1950, has ratified other Council of Europe and UN human rights instruments as well. It has agreed to be bound by various international human rights commitments, which bind it at the international level, establish binding treaty requirements. Um, the ECHR is by far and away the most important practical terms of this, because the ECHR has an associated court, the European Court of Human Rights, which we've all heard an awful lot about, and um, which, which of course establishes judgments. And the UK, under Article 46 of the, of the Convention, is required, like all other state parties to the Convention, to give effect to judgments of the court. So we had a long period of 30, 40 years where um, claimants would seek remedies from the court in Strasbourg, a declaration that UK law was in breach of the Convention, um, resulting in quite significant cases, like the gays in the military case of, um, of Smith and Grady versus the UK in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, but UK law itself, domestically, internally, lacked an enforceable code of human rights. Um, there, were, there was a gradual development of things called common law rights, which um, sort, of, sort, of, a sort of recognition of rights to some extent within the common law framework, but which remain quite fuzzy, frankly, but we can discuss this later. The HRA then came along, enacted in 1998, came to force in 2000, incorporated convention rights into, into domestic law. They made rights directly enforceable in front of UK courts. And that is the mechanism through which you can stand up in a court and say, my right to privacy has been violated, my right to freedom of expression has been violated, my right to fair trial has been violated. It creates the legal mechanism whereby you can base those arguments, you can directly base your rights-based claim and, 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 and seek a court remedy. And the HRA provides, gives courts extra interpretive powers and also requires them to um, potentially take into account Strasbourg jurisprudence, establishing some sort of link with the jurisprudence of the Strasbourg court. So that's what the HRA does in legal terms and constitutional terms. Excellent. And would you say that it's changed the UK constitution since it's been enforced? Um, yes, it, 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 it certainly has. Well, there's always this endless academic debate as to what the UK Constitution <laughs> exactly consists of. Is there anything to the UK Constitution more than the, uh, the sovereignty of the Crown and Parliament? Um, these are all great abstract questions which academics like myself like to sit down for endless days <laughs> and discuss. Um, it, there's no doubt that the day, in terms of the day-to-day -day functioning of law and government within the constitutional framework, the HRA has been a very important piece of legislation. It, 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 where human rights issues are at stake, it is inevitably looms large in decision-making in Parliament, in government, and of course in the courts. It's the source, it has loomed large in quite a few controversies, most recently the Rwanda flights controversy, and it certainly is 
and it plays a very, very important role whenever issues of human rights are at <coughs> stake and being debated, is the simplest way of answering the question. Thank you. Um, so we put the academic argument to one side. Estelle, you've been involved in advising clients on a wide range of human rights cases. What impact have you seen it have in practice? So it, it, it's had a very extensive and interesting impact. But if I could preface what I say on that with just two comments arising from what Colm has been talking about. The thing for me that I find really interesting about the UK's Human Rights Act, as opposed to many Bill of Rights in many other jurisdictions, is that our Human Rights Act is, is not part of really a, a kind of general constitutive document. So whereas, for example, in a country like South Africa, which put in, into place a constitution with the Bill of Rights. Another big part of that constitution was the rebirth of a particular nation with a particular way of functioning. And in many jurisdictions, you see that the constitution of the nation is also part of the same document that puts the Bill of Rights in place. And why I find that interesting for this country is because I think that's been part of why there is a bit of a disconnect or a difference in a way that the public views its Bill of Rights in this country, which is basically what the Human Rights Act is, versus the way that other Bills of Rights um, are viewed in other jurisdictions. But the Human Rights Act has had a very significant and clear impact across many areas of law. So I practice across a very wide range of public law, and to give you a few examples, when I first started out, um, I practice in planning and environment. I'd do little inquiries, I'd um, be trying to help homeowners who have an issue with the way in which planning laws might be encroaching in some way. Uh, and we would be able to rely, albeit not necessarily as our first argument, but we would be able to rely on certain rights that protect property, for example, or on the balance between um, rights that protect property and other rights um, in order to advance their arguments. Um, on the other side of that, um, also within the planning regime, one of the ways in which human rights has been important, the right to family life and the right to equality, has been in protecting the rights of gypsies and travellers. And so we see across the entire spectrum from a homeowner who is protecting bricks and mortar to a gypsy and traveller who is trying to protect an, an itinerant way of life, the Human Rights Act had a very profound effect on the way in which both of them went about that. However, in terms of media coverage, only one of those would necessarily be um, in, in the mind of the media. Other cases where I've had experience of the Human Rights Act applying for example, the ones that you talked about a bit earlier when you introduced me, um, it was quite central to one of the challenges that, was, um, that arose out of COVID, where there was a challenge by two NHS doctors to PPE guidance that was aimed at hospitals. And those doctors um, identified flaws in the way in which that guidance operated. And those flaws in particular had a disproportionate impact on black and minority ethnic practitioners. And so the Human Rights Act was one of the ways in which they were able to rely on the protection that is given um, to those minorities um, in order to say that the legislation um, was not compliant with their human rights. Um, and then in the A-levels case where I represented a, a young man 
who was very concerned about the way in which A-level marks were going to be um, given uh, at, in, in light of the fact they couldn't set, sit exams. Again, there was a human rights-based argument um, linked to um, the, the, way, uh, the way in which algorithmic decision-making was going to be um, used to apportion marks in a way which, again, we said um, disproportionately impacted certain vulnerable communities. So it applies in, in many different ways. Fantastic, thank you. So Estelle has there talked us through some kind of real-life cases. I mean, Shami, you've been around, um, you've joined Liberty around the same time as the Human Rights Act kind of first came into effect. Has it ma measured up to its initial expectations? Oh, definitely. Um, and, and that means that some people love it and some people hate it, but that's going to that's be the case with, um, with a document that is designed to prevent abuses of power, it is going to be annoying to the powerful. Uh, and that means governments of both persuasions. Um, um, I, I think just briefly, if, if I may, um, it, it's quite important for people to, to understand how, how, it, how it works. Mm -hmm. So section three of the Human Rights Act is incredibly important. This is the interpretation provision. And it means um, it, it provides that as far as it's possible to do so, all other legislation is going to be read um, in a way that's compatible with human rights. Now, that's legislation going back um, decades, but it's also legislation yet to come. And, that has, and, and what's really interesting to me about that is that even current government ministers, even during the period of the pandemic, when they were bringing forward various other bills um, covert human intelligence, overseas operations, various things that I was concerned about. Um, and, and colleagues would say, this provision, this, this power is too broad, um, this is going to be ripe for abuse. Min conservative ministers would themselves rely on the Human Rights Act as being a protection against abuse of power. So that's, that's, that's almost the key to the kingdom. Um, Section four is a declaration of incompatibility, which the courts, the higher courts have if it's not possible to interpret um, a statute. The, the language is so clear um, and so obviously violating of human rights. Um, you, you, you can't interpret it out of existence. You, you, you're to make this, this declaration. And that, that, to me, is an exquisite constitutional compromise because... Um, and it's a compromise between the rule of law on, on the one hand and parliamentary sovereignty on the other. So we do not, under this legislation, have what is possible in the United States and, and other constitutional democracies where the highest courts can ultimately strike down um, violating uh, legislation as unconstitutional. We don't, we don't have that here. So the, the, the nuclear weapon, if you like, for a higher court that thinks that a statute is, 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 is a terrible thing and, and violating, you know, it, you know, it's going to kill blue-eyed babies or whatever. If, if, if it can't be interpreted in, 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 a, in a decent way, then there has to just be an honest declaration of incompatibility. And then the pressure must be political on a government to, to think again. And then section six is very important. This is a duty of public authorities, including courts, to, um, to behave in a way that's compatible with human rights. Again, unless a statute is very clear and makes it impossible for them to do so. And finally, I would say section a little shout out for section 19, um, which is a duty of a minister to, on the face um, of, of legislation, say whether they think that their, their bill is compatible or not. And, and that's a, a more minority sport for those of us perhaps in parliament. But it is important that ministers have to nail their colors to the mast and say, I think that this 
police bill, this immigration <coughs> bill, whatever it is, is actually compatible with human rights. And that mechanism, I think, has worked very well in all sorts of ways. I think that, um, and before I went to, to uh, Liberty, by the way, I was a Home Office lawyer, and I worked in the Home Office during the passage of the Human Rights Act. And I think it has been <coughs> important that public officials have had to think about concepts like proportionality mm -hmm. when they're making decisions um, and when they're crafting new, new powers. I think it has been incredibly important that it has been possible to reinterpret statutes that would otherwise be causing huge problems. The, 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 the classic and early example was Gaydon and Mendoza, the Rent Act case, you know, the, the, the long-standing same-sex uh, couple, um, uh, one dies and the rent book is in his name and his partner is facing potential eviction, whereas if they were living together as husband and wife, according to the 1976, I think, Rent Act, then the tenancy would be protected for the surviving partner. And it was possible to use Section 3 to read as husband and wife as covering, as husband and husband, or as wife, you know, as people in that kind of quasi-marital relationship. And it means you don't have to then you know, dredge through the whole statute book and run around, you know, remedying every every piece of legislation, and it's a, and it's a protection for the future. I think I think that's been very important. But it's also important that courts are public authorities. So when they develop the common law, they should do so in in a way that's compatible um, with, with rights and freedoms. I think the fact that it will clip the wings sometimes of of, of governments of all of all colours and both persuasions is is important because that's what a Bill of Rights does. It's, it's about protecting individual people from um, abuses of power. Of course it annoys the powerful. That is press barons. But, but by the way, press barons have also benefited at times from the free speech protection. People love to bang on about free speech in the UK and how it, you know, it, it comes with the running water and all the rest of it, but there was no actionable protection of, of, of free speech against parliamentary sovereignty until we had, and, until we had the, the Human Rights Act. Would it be possible to, to, to do something different? Of course it would. Of course, it's much easier after a, um, for a, after a revolution or a civil war or you know, when a country is being reborn at a, a moment of liberation. But Britain hasn't been quite in that place for quite a long time. And so things have evolved rather than uh, being, being the result of a, a revolution. If one was to draft a new Bill of Rights that actually gave people new rights as opposed to Mr Robb's plan to take them away, I think you would have to do so with a great deal of intergenerational consensus, cross-party consensus, take the whole country with you, consult widely. If you want something to stick for hundreds of years, you should take a few years to, to, to craft it. If there is a criticism that I would make of the Human Rights Act of its infancy and adolescence, it was that the new Labour government didn't love it enough, didn't share it and expose it enough to ordinary people. They were happy to train the judges because they didn't want the judges to be clipping, you know, clipping the wings of the Home Office too much, but they didn't really take it to the people. And, and then, of course, very quickly, there was the war on terror. Plus, you've got the decimation of legal aid, and you end up with a narrative, a sort of educational narrative that is the newspapers telling people that human rights are not for you because you don't get legal aid. Human rights are for refugees and terror suspects. And, and that 
was a narrative that was allowed to develop. So the political parents of the human rights site, which were the Labour government, you know, didn't really do the best job at nurturing. And then governments of other persuasions come in. And everybody wants to be a founding father, and everybody wants to draft their own um, Bill of Rights. I suppose one of my biggest criticisms of Mr. Robb's rights removal bill is, where is the poetry? This is supposed to be your Bill of Rights. Come on, where is the poetry? There is not much in here to make your heart sing, but there are a lot of rights that are, that are, that are diluted um, and taken away. Yeah, we'll come on to speaking more about the Bill of Rights in, in a minute, um, but thank you for that. Um, I mean, Lord Fox, we've just heard from uh, Shami about uh, how, the, how she thinks the Human Rights Act is working well and how it's kind of changed the behaviour of government and how we interpret legislation. Uh, what's your view? Do you agree that those are, that those are benefits? I think you, you have to, um, as everyone else done, uh, look at a bit at the history of the whole thing, because... Um, we did have rights before the Human Rights Act became um, law. Uh, they may or may not, depending on your point of view, have been properly respected. Um, and I actually agree with what everybody said about the fact that we haven't had a constitutional moment, really, which has resulted in a major rethink of all our rights. I'm on the Constitution Committee, and um, one of our distinguished members is Lord Hennessy, a constitutional historian, who says that... Um, he spent his entire life looking for the British Constitution. <laughs> we know it's there in various parts, but actually putting it all in one document may be a good idea, but it certainly would uh, take a lot of work. Is this a constitutional act, as it sometimes has been described? Well, it clearly has um, uh, enormous Im impact. Although, interestingly enough, I remember attending those lectures as a junior judge, a recorder. Uh, we were all told what this new legislation might mean. Quite a lot of the lecturers said it's really not going to make very much difference. It's just going to be a question of tick box. Yes, it complies with the Human Rights Act. A few said they thought the uh, judges might be more adventurous. And I looked at the debates the other day in the House of Lords uh, at second reading about the, uh, the bill, and a number of them said they were worried that this would be a major transfer of power to the judges. Uh, the judges hadn't actually asked for this power. This was a political decision to give them these powers. There was no pre-legislative scrutiny. There was no white paper. There was no green paper. All there was was a policy document. So I absolutely agree with the Shami that if you're going to make major constitutional changes, you should spend plenty of time doing it. The truth was they didn't, the Labour government, didn't uh, spend plenty of time doing it. And then when the terror problem, which she rightly refers to, came about, they often didn't like the results of the Human Rights Act any more than uh, the Conservative government didn't like, for example, the vote um, about prisoners' votes in Strasbourg. Uh, so there's been a lot of discontent. Uh, and when the coalition government came into power, uh, I was one, and I see there's another distinguished member of our panel in the audience, Anthony Spate, were asked to look at the possibility of a British Bill of Rights. And the majority decided that it would be a good idea to have a British Bill of Rights. And one of the reasons was that there'd been a lack of real enthusiasm uh, amongst the population for the Human Rights Act, partly because it was considered a foreign import and we were subcontracting so many things to the Strasbourg court. So the, the feeling of the majority, including Lord Leicester, who'd been one of the main advocates for the incorporation of the convention, was that uh, in order to get people 
signed up to it, we should have a British Bill of Rights. It might reflect very much what was in the European Convention, but it wouldn't be seen as something foreign and distinct from, uh, from uh, what we respect and have traditionally respected here. Has it been a great success, finally, to answer the question that I was posed? Uh, I think it's had a mixed result, frankly. I, I should declare an interest as having acted for public authorities uh, in a lot of major cases of the last 25 years. And I think there are some areas where public authorities have been bewildered by what they are advised the Human Rights Act requires them to do. And uh, the law has always had considerable difficulty in deciding when you should sue public authorities in negligence, for example, because public authorities don't, um, like you know, doctors or professionals, barristers, for example, contract with their clients. They're told by parliament there are certain things they should do. When they don't do them very well, should they be sued? And, the pendulum has gone this way and that. For the most part, for example, with social workers, uh, a very difficult job. Uh, the courts decided, no, I don't think we should have them sued in, uh, in private law actions and negligence. However, after the Human Rights Act, the Court of Appeal said, oh, this is a decision that cannot stand with the Human Rights Act. So there is now a kind of twin track. You can sue people in negligence or you can't sue them in negligence. Can you sue them under the Human Rights Act? Uh, you may or may not be able to. There's a lot of confusion and uncertainty generated. And I think one of the things the Bill of Rights Act, which we may come on to, is this question of positive obligations. It's one thing to say uh, the government or a public authority has harmed you directly. You can sue them. It's another thing to say they fail to stop someone else doing it which is a positive obligation. And for example, the police can be sued under the Human Rights Act for failing to prevent you being a victim of crime. Or the police can be sued for uh, failing to prevent somebody being enslaved by someone else. Uh, these are quite difficult questions and are really difficult um, for courts to determine fairly, doing their best. And they rely to some extent on the Strasbourg jurisprudence. They take it into account. The bill, uh, which I know we're going to come on to at the moment, is trying to put a bit more distance between uh, Strasbourg and our courts, give Parliament more power, as it always had done, give our courts power to develop the common law, as it always had done. So I think it's kind of a mixed picture. I could go on for ages, I won't. Um, and I think it's understandable there hasn't been a total love affair with it. It isn't just restricted to the tabloid press, although the tabloid press don't like it, it's perfectly true. Um, and uh, yes, there have been some positives, but there have also been some negatives. Thank you. And I mean, uh, I think it's perhaps we can go straight on to, to the Bill of Rights. Um, and you kind of mentioned uh, some of your reflections on it and some things that it sounds like you think it does, it does well. But would, is this the sort of reform that you wanted to see? Does it address the concerns um, that you have and create the outcome that you think is necessary? Well, I don't speak for the government, <clears throat> and, and, and I don't know precisely what was intended. I mean, there are some people, I think, in the Conservative Party who would like to uh, repeal the Human Rights Act full stop. There are some people who would like to leave the European Convention altogether. Some people would like to revert to the old system where you could petition uh, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, but you couldn't actually bring a case here. Uh, um, this is a compromise. Uh, this is, preserves the uh, convention rights in Schedule 1 of the bill, but it tries to identify certain areas where I think the government thinks 
the Human Rights Act has been going wrong mm -hmm. and tries to deal with them. In particular, it's, it, it thinks that the particular provision, Section 3, about which Shami spoke so fondly, has resulted in sometimes parliamentary sovereignty being ignored because courts can, as it were, interpret a, an act of parliament in a way that it doesn't really uh, reflect what it says because it has to be compliant with the Human Rights Act. Now, whether you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, that's one of the areas they want to cover. They want to cover, um, there's a particular provision which deals with the Rwanda decision, uh, which um, is currently going through the courts of this country. So far, it's been decided that the Rwanda decision, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, was lawful, but a decision by an unidentified single judge in Strasbourg was that it was unlawful. And uh, the jurisdiction for interim uh, orders like this is challenged distinctly by this particular provision. There are various other uh, matters, particularly to do with foreign criminals, which they deal with. Uh, so they're, they're far fighting rather than having some overall concept, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of what this is. Great, thank you. Um, or firebombing, you might say. Yeah. This is why I want to bring Colmick. I guess mm. we've got, we've got, are we fiddling or are we firebombing? We've heard, you know, some very strong objections to this from civil society. I think it's going to, you know, blow the human rights out, act, act out the water. We've heard um, from other people who think that the bill doesn't actually practically change much in real terms. What do you think is, is the actual effect of it? I think the bill is a bit of a shambles and I'll, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Um, it, it tries to have its cake and eat it. It doesn't repeal the Human Rights Act. Well, right, technically it repeals the Human Rights Act and then reenacts convention rights into UK law. Um, so it does repeal the Human Rights Act, but not really. Um, it effectively reintroduces the HRA structure with some tweaks. And then it sets out to micromanage, in a way, mm. the impact of the HRA case law. And, and uh, Lord Fox mentioned the um, provisions in relation to positive obligations. Section 3 tries to micromanage the court's relationship with the Strasbourg court, how it can, what jurisprudence it can take into account, and so on. Um, and, and see, what they're doing there is that they want to hold on to having enforceable rights protection in UK law. And in a way, you have to, because there's 20 years now of, for example, detailed mental health law taking into account convention rights. But at the same time, they want to tweak it to achieve more desirable endpoint results from a government point of view. And I can understand that impulse. The problem is that we're left with a bill that sort of, as I said, is a sort of HRA Mark II with lots of knobs and whistles. And some of those knobs and whistles are, I think, a little bit bizarre, to be honest. Um, section 3 has this extraordinary provision. Mm. Section 3, subsection 3, I recommend you all look it up, um, <laughs> has this rather extraordinary provision in relation to when the UK courts can take into account developments in Strasbourg jurisprudence. Where they basically, section 3.3 sort of attempts to say that the UK courts should only follow Strasbourg, new developments in the Strasbourg jurisprudence, when it's crystal clear that the Strasbourg court has committed itself to its new jurisprudential development. It's to stop the UK courts running ahead of Strasbourg. The problem is the current text of the bill says that the UK courts should only do this when they are satisfied beyond reasonable doubt, the criminal standards suddenly appearing in a public law context. 
um, that Strasbourg is going to decide in this way. Um, it's, it's exceptionally difficult to think about how this could be operationalized in practice. If I was the judge, I would have no idea how to deal with this. Um, and there are other provisions of the Act that I think are really quite problematic. So, in other words, I think it's a bit of a mess because the government, as I said, is trying to have its cake and eat it, to have a, a, a human rights legal framework and at the same time to micromanage as far as possible. So I think they've ended up with, a, a, frankly, a, a very unsatisfactory um, piece of legislation. It'll be interesting to see how it's treated in the Commons and the Lords mm. uh, if and when it progresses through. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and just to come to you, Estelle, if I was a private citizen wanting to make a human rights claim, how would this bill affect me? Well, it might affect you very fundamentally. Uh, but just to pick up on a couple of the things that have been said before I, I answer that question, um, I, I, I think it might be charitable to be saying that the bill is, is seeking to have its cake and eat it. Um, in some areas, what the bill appears to, to many practitioners to be aimed at is forcing a fundamental conflict between the courts in the United Kingdom and the Strasbourg courts. Yeah. Because the bill, in the way in which it micromanages judicial decision-making, forces the courts uh, essentially to act contrary uh, or at least arguably contrary to what would happen in Strasbourg in any event. So take, for example, positive obligations. Um, in certain circumstances, the bill would uh, put the courts in a position where they would not be able to recognise a right having a positive consequence. And let me just say, it is very difficult in practice to differentiate between the negative protection that a right gives yeah, and the positive right. aspect right. of the right. So if you are asking, for example, for your protection of your right to vote, to what extent is it a positive part of that obligation to ensure that you have the right to vote for the government to prevent um, in, 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 there being, in, for example, in a polling station, there being interference and the preventing of your right to exercise your ballot? Or um, is that a positive or a negative element? Is it a positive or a negative element of the right to vote that if you're a disabled person, um, you have reasonable adjustments that allow you to vote? It's very difficult in, in practice um, to differentiate those two. But the bill, in a, in a number of instances, positive obligations being one of them, but there are many, forces the courts in this country down a path which will put them at loggerheads with the jurisprudence in Strasbourg and will just inevitably mean, if I'm or if anybody is representing a claimant in this country, that their eventual aim will be necessarily to have their rights vindicated in Strasbourg because that will be the only place where the full effect of the convention rights will be um, able to be uh, given force. And so the upshot of that, in my um, view, is twofold. First, there is a um, essentially gerrymandered position which will bring the courts in this country into the opposite position from the one they find themselves today. As we sit here today, the UK is the country with the least number of cases that goes to Strasbourg, and proportionately, um, looking at the population size, and also with the least number of decisions against the government. We are also a country where the, where the Strasbourg court has had the most dialogue with our apex mm. court. Mm. So our Supreme Court, out of all the member states, 
uh, in the uh, European Union, has been able to have a dialogue and have the Strasbourg case law changed. And if you want a magisterial uh, overview of how the court has done that, Lord Mance of the Supreme Court in the last week um, published a Thomas More lecture where he goes through in some detail the ways in which the Strasbourg jurisprudence has been changed by that dialogue with yep. the Supreme Court. Yep. And the Bill of Rights Bill will end that necessarily. Yep. And then it will put us on a collision course where more and more cases end up in the Strasbourg Court in order to be determined um, when they would never have to go that way um, in, in the way that they are de de decided now. So, to come back to your question. If I'm representing a client, and um, the first thing that I would have to think of under this bill um, is whether they fall into the deserving class or not. Because this bill differentiates between some individuals in this country who are more deserving of protection than others. So if I'm representing a prisoner, or if I'm representing an asylum seeker, or if I'm representing someone who can't show a certain level of um, elevated victimhood, I'm not going to get necessarily through the door in a way that I would now. And that means I just go straight to Strasbourg. Second, there will be circumstances where I'm unable to put forward arguments, for example, based on a sensible interpretation um, of the legislation. Uh, and so again, I'm simply just going straight to Strasbourg. Um, and third, there will be circumstances um, where, uh, where now, um, I, for example, might be able to uh, rely on certain interim measures, uh, but going forward I might not be. And just to touch on as my final point, what you were saying about um, the, the interim measure that was brought from Strasbourg um, in the Rwanda case. The whole point of that is simply to hold the ring. The point of that is to prevent action which seriously diminishes potentially the rights of an individual before the domestic court has had a proper and reasoned opportunity to engage with the case. Mm. And the, odd, the oddity about this bit of the bill, and Lord Mance has some discussion about whether that bit was added in after what happened um, in the Rwanda saga. Um, the oddity about that bit of the bill is that the courts are required to ignore the interim measure. But the interim measure isn't just for the courts. If the European court puts in place an interim measure, that is directed first and foremost at the government and at those um, entities within the government that would be uh, applying a certain policy or enacting uh, a, a certain policy um, or a certain piece of legislation. And they will still be bound under their international obligations under the European, uh, because they're still a member of the Council of Europe, to comply with that interim measure. So we're in a very unsatisfactory position, whether the government is re required to comply with something, but the courts are required to ignore that that something exists. And uh, that is a Humpty Dumpty world, and I feel very uncomfortable practicing in that world. Shami, I was at a, a conference of civil society groups last week, um, and this was one of the key issues on, on their agenda. And there's a lot of concern about how it might affect their work in various ways. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the Bill of Rights? We, well, look, I, I think I agree um, with all the criticisms that have been put. So. So, so brilliantly. It's a very, very shoddy uh, con because it's not a Bill of Rights at all. You can call it, you know, you can, it, it is, a Bill of Rights gives people rights, Add, adds to their rights substantively or adds to the, the ability to vindicate their rights. A Bill of Rights does not take rights away or um, impede your ability to enforce your rights. And for all the reasons we've just heard in that outstanding um, 
exposition, this is a rights removal bill. There's no question about it. And it, it's, it's playing the sort of jingoistic game that, no, no, um, Clause 3, the Supreme Court is the ultimate judicial authority on questions arising under domestic law in connection with convention rights. Well, as we've heard, um, under the Human Rights Act, the Supreme Court is actually the ultimate judicial authority. It's, it's under an obligation to take account of Strasbourg jurisprudence, but it is not bound by it. Now, there have been periods where um, the Supreme Court um, decided to be very, very cognizant more than other times and of the Strasbourg to be almost be bound, but that was the Supreme Court for itself choosing that route, and that has and it's turned a corner to some extent on that. But having said that, the Supreme Court is now the ultimate judicial authority. The clause, as we've just heard from Colin, goes on to say, but our this wonderful sovereign Supreme Court may not adopt an interpretation of a right that expands on Strasbourg. So let's be clear, this is about executive domination. This isn't even about parliamentary sovereignty, it's about executive domination. And it's a government that doesn't like judges and courts very much. It doesn't like them in Strasbourg, it doesn't like them in London or anywhere else. And it's certainly, and, and the people that this government likes even less than judges are activist lawyers. Yeah? Um, because these are the people who represent you know, refugees or protesters or whatever. And, and this government just has a philosophical objection to people seeking recourse to the courts to vindicate their fundamental rights and freedoms. And that objection, that philosophy is just what this, what this bill is all about. And so I'm not surprised that civil society are very anxious and upset because they can, you know, they can, they can see this coming. They can see, you know, Back after 9-11, when a Labour government interned people suspected of links with terrorism indefinitely without charge or trial, you know, the Human Rights Act was tested and it passed the test. Because what happened was the, high, the apex court made a declaration of incompatibility about that, about that policy. And then government decided to respond. Um, and that was an honest dialogue between... Um, the government and parliament and the courts, just as there is an honest dialogue between the Strasbourg courts and the domestic courts with actually our domestic courts um, really helping to shape Strasbourg jurisprudence. So those two bits of dialogue will get broken by this. The, the, the proper dialogue between, um, between judges and elected politicians and the proper dialogue between domestic and international courts and ordinary people will suffer. Last week, at, on the M25, a journalist, not a protester, a journalist, an LBC journalist, was arrested and detained in a cell, in a police cell, for over five hours and then released without uh, charge or even police interview. And she was arrested, in my view, it was an unlawful arrest for, for conspiracy to cause a public nuisance. Now, if there's any doubt that that was an unlawful exercise of police power, um, if, if it's a common law offence, you, you, um, you're a public authority, you shape the common law, you read the common law in a way that's compatible with, with, with free speech and journalistic freedom in, in that case. If it's a statutory offence or, or police power, then you've got section three to ensure that things, if possible, are read compatibly. That's all, gonna, that's all going with this. 
And at the same time, we've got another public order bill, and there will be more bills um, interfering with the rights of protesters, of, of, of foreign nationals, of asylum seekers, and so it comes. And we won't even have the backstop protection that we described earlier with Section 3 and Section 4 and Section 6, and this overall protection that comes, comes with the Human Rights Act. A protection that even conservative ministers in the present government have been relying on as a, as, as a safety net when they're passing more bills. So, um, so I, th I think that, that, that says it all. This is, this is terrible for rights and freedoms of ordinary people in this country, and we, we just have to, all of us, in any way we can, try and resist it. So I think I can summarise by saying there's not a huge amount of enthusiasm um, for the government's proposals um, on, on the panel, but I'm going to start bringing in audience questions. I'm going to start from uh, some of those on Slido, and then I'll, I'll come to our in-person audience. So please do uh, start having a think. Um, but one of the questions we have here from Anonymous, unfortunately, um, is about the panel's ideas for reform. Um, what would you like to, to see changed, or do you think that there isn't a need for reform at all? Um, if I start with, with Edward and then anyone else, please do come in. Um, <clears throat> I don't think this bill is perfect, but I think there are probably areas that something could be uh, looked at. I, I'm, I'm, I think in answering the question, I'm not going to be too specific, but I'm going to say this, that um, the governments of all persuasions do their best sometimes to cope with really difficult situations. So, for example, the war on terror. I was on a parliamentary committee where three former Labour Home Secretaries said, we found it impossible to protect the public. We didn't know what to do. We kept on passing legislation and the courts kept on saying the Human Rights Act means you can't do it. We got to the stage where we would say, I think we'd, before we get any legislation through, we'll go and have a word with the judges and see what they say, whether it's possible to do this. And, uh, of course, the judges quite actually said, no, no, you have to wait for a particular issue. But there was an illustration of a major transfer of power to judges, not that they grasped it necessarily. And I think that there is a, a real risk that in championing those who are the victims of you know, human rights abuses, we forget the governments through Parliament and they have to have parliamentary authority, are trying to protect us in certain situations. And sometimes the workings of the Human Rights Act are such that it becomes very difficult for governments to do what's in the public interest. Um, and also, I'm afraid to say I don't accept the idea that, as it were, all law must come from Strasbourg, which is almost what I thought was being said. No. The law has developed. Common law, Parliament, has protected people's rights historically. They can continue to do so. Strasbourg and any other court can be used to develop the law, and, uh, but we shouldn't, and I think the Supreme Court has increasingly acknowledged this, have the whole of our law developing, as it were, via Strasbourg jurisprudence, which frankly is of varying quality. Uh, some of the judges are good, some of them are less good. Yes, we are a significant part of the dialogue, quite rightly so. I've been to Strasbourg, I've met the judges, they have a very high regard for our courts. But some of their decisions are, frankly, pretty odd. And sometimes they've misunderstood our procedure. I've been involved in cases where a fundamental um, uh, lack of comprehension of a striking out procedure caused huge problems here um, as a result of a decision in Strasbourg. So I don't think we should canonize Strasbourg as being a court. It gets it wrong, just the courts get it wrong here. And uh, 
I think the government is perfectly entitled, any government, to identify areas which they think need attention. And whether they've got them all right in this bill, I think, is a different matter. And I do think, for example, the point that Con makes about the, the drafting, uh, I think what actually that very complicated provision is trying to say is what Lord Brown said, which is that it should be a ceiling, um, there should be a floor, not a ceiling. I think they, they probably said to the parliamentary draftsman, try and put this into parliamentary language. I'm not sure they were able to do it. I think it was a challenge to parliamentary draftsmen. But I do think they are entitled to identify areas where the Act is not working. It's an Act of Parliament, like any other. After 20 years, you can look at it and say, look, it's not perfect. The things we can do, we shouldn't be theological about the Human Rights Act. It's no more than any other Act of Parliament. Well, it's not true because it's a Bill of Rights. You don't change those every 20 years in a constitutional democracy. Great. Can, can I just say something about that before we, we take another question, which is... Um, and it, it's sort of the reason that I felt it was important and useful to have this discussion tonight. Um, there is something, I think, that is worthwhile thinking about in relation to the Human Rights Act. And it's that dissonance that I mentioned before between the, the, essentially the public acceptance of this, the love of this, as a, a, a Bill of Rights, as something that protects everybody, and the way in which the, the, the Act is, is operating in practice. And I think it is worthwhile, um, just, just to agree with the folks, it, it is worthwhile to have a review with that overarching difficulty in mind. And interestingly, to a certain extent, that review has already happened. So Peter Gross and his team was put in place with the um, Independent Human Rights Act review um, to look at the operation of the Act and whether there were ways in which the operation of the Act could be improved. And they did a lot of evidence gathering and made recommendations. But those don't seem to have had any interaction with or engagement from the government. And I think there are a couple of really interesting suggestions that were made. And I don't think it's necessarily a problem to be worried about um, amendment of the Human Rights Act as, as uh, something that could necessarily diminish rights. I think it could um, assist and improve the Human Rights Act if we thought about certain amendments. And maybe we'll talk about substantive right amendments um, in a sec. But just to look at what the, the uh, Peter Gross Review looked at, um, he looked at tweaks in relation to the way in which certain operational acts or certain operational elements of the Human Rights Act work. Um, for example, making it very clear about the role of the common law. And that, to a certain extent, will simply codify what's happened in the courts already, but that would be useful. And that might be a way in which the Human Rights Act is felt by the general public, because the common law is understood to be our law, might be felt by the general public to be more in line with uh, a British way of going about things. Secondly, there may, might be a way to clarify in terms of interpretation um, what, which interpretative powers come first, and then you look at uh, the Section 3 later. Again, pretty much what courts do already, but it might be useful to have it. And the one area where I think we should have something is in, the right, in civil education, civil and human rights education, because we will not love our, our Bill of Rights in this country until we properly understand the way it works. And both the Joint Committee on Human Rights and um, the Independent Review um, of the Human Rights Act suggested that there's a need for proper civil education and rights education. Um, and, and I think that's um, absolutely so. Great, thank you. Right, I want to give our audience uh, a chance to ask some, uh, ask some questions. I'm going to take them in uh, groups of three. We have a mic coming round if, when you ask your question, um, you say who you are and what organisation you're from. Uh, that would be great. So first here, great if we can get another two questions. 
Uh, Alex Horne, uh, I'm a barrister and visiting professor at the University of Durham. Um, the panel made reference to the fact that the likelihood of the bill currently uh, before Parliament is that more cases might go to Strasbourg. Uh, I think my concern uh, about this would be, um, as Colm uh, made clear earlier, under Article 46 of the uh, Convention, that means that the UK is meant to comply. But the last time we had a major disagreement with Strasbourg over the prisoner voting saga, um, one of the characters uh, currently in play here, Dominic Raab, the Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice, seemed quite keen uh, for the UK actually to pass a bill to say that it wouldn't comply uh, with its obligations under uh, the Convention. And I just wonder whether the panel thinks that this bill uh, may have uh, the result that further cases of this type would arise that would eventually cause us uh, conflict with the Strasbourg system in the future. Thank you. Great, thank you. Any other questions in the room? Yep, the gentleman here. It'd be great if we could get a gender balance. Any women in Hi, the room? my name is Howard Jones. I'm a retired fire officer. Um, my question is about remand prisoners and I'm concerned about the human rights of remand prisoners, particularly foreign nationals, and whether there should be a maximum term that they can be held on remand. I know a, uh, a lady foreign national, she's 55 years old, she's got a clean criminal record, never been in trouble in the past, and she's been held on remand for over seven years. I just wonder whether there's any views on that. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Thank you, my name's Verity Bell and I'm a barrister at Cornerstone Barristers. I was curious about um, some of the comments about positive obligations. I, as I understand it, the clause five of the bill is the one that deals with that. And what I'm particularly interested in, obviously it's a question for the panel at large, but I'd be interested to hear Lord Falks's view on the sort of fossilization effect on the, and the difference in interpretation uh, pre- and post-implementation of the bill, because it appears to me that the court is required to interpret positive obligations before the date of the passage of the bill in one particular way, but then post the date the bill is implemented, uh, interpret positive obligations a different way. And my question is really, how is that principled? How is that reflective of what ought to occur, rather than an arbitrary date selected. Great, thank you. Um, if we start with Lord Fawkes um, with that question and then um, I'll let the panel come in on any other of those questions they want to respond to, if we can keep uh, remarks fairly brief so that we might be able to fit another round, that'd be great. I think that the answer may possibly be provided by clause 40, <coughs> transitional and saving provisions. Uh, I think it isn't particularly principled. I think clause 40 is to try and stop some of the chaos that might ensue with uncertainty, but I'm not sure. Um, but I looked at it and I thought, rather like you, this is not terribly satisfactory. And uh, clause 40 could be an answer. Great. Anyone else like to come in on, in on that round of questions? Any questions about uh, Strasbourg? Yeah, yeah on, the on the conflict with Strasbourg point, I, I really share your concern, but, I, but um, to be a little political about it for a moment, I think... I think the, um, the proposers of this bill are probably very happy to be in conflict with Strasbourg because it suits that political agenda. Because 
you know, Brexit is a feeling and it's a feeling that's never done. <laughs> and, 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 and so you have to keep having new targets for, for that sort of particular version of, of, um, of nationalism verging on xenophobia. Um, and we know that Mr. Robb and indeed the, his colleague, Ms. Braverman, the, the resurrected Home Secretary, um, have made comments about wanting to come out of Strasbourg anyway. So it might be um, an amuse-bouche. This bill might be actually be the amuse-bouche um, that sets up the, the conflict um, and then in due course these, you know, because people are having to go and vindicate their rights in wicked old sausage-eating Strasbourg. Um, and, uh, and then the judgments will be coming from there and not from London and all the more reason to perhaps, who knows, even pull out the Council of Europe so we can be outside with, with Russia um, yeah, who, who, who knows? Because um, that, that is a political agenda that some people enjoy and find successful for their mm. for their politics and their political careers and political uh, survival. And I, I share your concerns about remand prisoners and, and indeed foreign nationals. And there are provisions, and we don't need to go into any detail, but there are provisions in this bill that clearly signal that we think that some people are more worthy of rights than others. And those people tend to, the people who are worthy people are, um, are not foreign nationals and are not unfortunate enough to be in custody, whether on remand or whether post-conviction. And, and, and again, to make that kind of distinction is just not, that is not a bill of rights. That is not about giving people rights. That is not the principle of equality under the law. That is not a human rights principle, but it's a clear indicator of the, um, the politics and the values of the people who have drafted and drafted this and promote this policy. Mm. Yeah, very briefly, I think there inevitably will be greater friction with Strasbourg. Um, I also suspect that the UK will not be leaving Strasbourg soon um, for various reasons we could discuss. Uh, I know you want to talk about devolution later. I'll just flag up the Good Friday Agreement, if nothing else, in this, um, which means that we could be in a situation of enhanced friction that continues, which I think has quite profound rule of law um, issues. Um, on clause five, there's a lot I could say about clause five. Um, I, I do think clause five is a bit of a disaster zone, let me be very frank, as a piece of legislative drafting and provisions. Um, I think the government doesn't quite know what it wants to do with clause five. Um, Estelle's points earlier about how you can, the difference between negative and positive obligations. Um, I, I think the principal effect of clause five will be to encourage greater creativity in the bar um, <laughs> and will achieve nothing more than that. Um, and, 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 and there's an interesting facet of the bill which I think is underexplored. It was actually mentioned by Lord Fox. The, the provisions of, I think it's clause 40, the transitional provisions, give extensive scope for secondary legislation to patch up lots of existing areas of law. My reading of the effect of the bill is that there will be lots of patching required, in particular the retrospective effect of section three of the act if it's changed. And that we're actually going to have to have a lot of secondary instruments adjusting the law as it stands, all of which raises issues about ministers playing with different areas of the law, overburdening and already burdened scrutiny mechanisms within, 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 within Westminster, um, none of which I think is a recipe for legal certainty and rule of law more generally.
I'll just say one thing about the dialogue with Strasbourg. Uh, strangely enough, I actually had to go to Strasbourg to address the Committee of Ministers as a minister as to why we hadn't given prisoners the vote. And I had to say, look, I'm very sorry, but at the moment, Parliament will not do it. We hope that we can persuade them to do it in due course. And actually, the view of Strasbourg, they were not looking for a fight. They wanted to try and come to an accommodation. And eventually, we did. What was, what was offensive to Strasbourg was the blanket mm. uh, immunity rather than mm. giving every prisoner of the vote. We eventually got there. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure that this is... You may be right. The government may be wanting to pick a fight for populist reasons. But on the whole, I think, you know, Article 46 is one thing. The practicalities of working out what a breach means should mean much more negotiation and reconciliation. Thank you. Fantastic. Unfortunately, uh, we are rapidly running out of time, and I know a couple of panellists have to make it back for debates in the Lords. Estelle, I'm going to give you the last word before mm. I wrap up if there's anything you wanted to respond there. Mm. Um, well, maybe two things. I'll cede half my last word to Colm about um, devolution, because I think that's important. But uh, maybe just to say that there are some other interesting areas where uh, more substantive uh, rights reform um, is being considered. Um, and one that's particularly interesting to me is the uh, movement around the right to a clean and healthy environment. Mm. Uh, for many in the United Kingdom, any sort of um, social right like that um, tends to, to put fear into their eyes. Uh, but I think uh, in light of the climate crisis, uh, there's going to be very significant emphasis around the right to a clean and healthy environment. And if we're not going to be interpreting Article 2 and Article 8 of the Convention to encompass that, mm. which maybe we're not because we don't want to interpret these rights broadly anymore, then introducing a right to a clean and healthy environment or having the debate about doing that, um, I think, will come, and that will be very interesting. Anything about devolution? Uh, well, very briefly about devolution, just there's two dimensions to devolution to mention. Uh, first of all, there's the Scottish and Welsh dimension, in particular the Scottish dimension. Uh, the, the, the Bill of Rights Bill is uh, the Scottish National Party will be very, very grateful for this free piece of propaganda. <laughs> the, um, because, of course, uh, let's just say the politics in Scotland of UK Parliament leg legislation to reduce rights, because that's effectively what we're talking about, in a context where the Scottish Parliament, rightly or wrongly, is incorporating more rights, in particular the rights, uh, the Convention on the Rights of Children, and potentially a wider set of UN conventions into Scottish law. This is, shall we say, um, going in different directions. And of course, that suits certain narratives about the UK as a policy and Scotland as a policy going in different directions. And I think that aspect of the debate has been underestimated. Um, lots could be said about Northern Ireland. I will just mention, I briefly mentioned it, the Good Friday Agreement commits the UK to recognising conve the convention and convention judgments as an essential safeguard and requires that convention rights in some form bind the Northern Ireland devolved authorities. Um, that is one of the reasons I say that my strong suspicion is that the UK isn't going anywhere as regards the convention. All of which means, because the Good Friday Agreement effectively commits the UK as an essential safeguard, I'll say it again, of the Good Friday Agreement to staying within the convention system. That's why the dangers with this bill is creating this permanent state of irritability, potential irritability, um, between Strasbourg and the UK, which 
I really think will have damaging implications for rule of law and legal certainty, I'll say it again, simply because these are good old-fashioned British legal constitutional values, which seem to me to be somewhat overlooked in the discussion on this current bill. Fantastic, thank you. Unfortunately, we're going to have to end it there. I feel like there's so many more issues we could get our teeth into. Um, as I mentioned at the start, this event is part of our review of the UK Constitution. We'll be publishing original papers, papers commissioned by experts and academics, including one today from former senior civil servant Philip Rycroft, um, also holding a series of events and roundtables across the country. So please do um, look out for all of that. If you enjoyed today's event, you can come back tomorrow um, at 5.30 when we've been having an in-conversation with John Edwards, the UK Information Commissioner. Um, He's a hoot, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those in person, we've also got drinks and nibbles on, on the landing, which if you come back tomorrow, you can corner uh, John Edwards. <laughs> um, but the only thing that's left me to do is to thank our excellent panellists, Shami Chakravarti, Estelle uh, Dehon, Casey, Lord Falks, Casey, and Colm O'Kennady. Um, and thank you to Cornerstone Barristers as well for their support for this event. If you join me in thanking the panel. <laughs>